Welcome to episode 73, Score and 10, the biblical age of demise, traditionally PVO. Professor PVO, welcome to the well, Professor also, and the Hack. G'day, Hugh, and we've also now hit the age that the government wants the retirement age to be at. Really? You mean it's not 85 already? <laughs> well, give it time, but um, they, I, they never got that legislation through, though, did they? It's, it's still held back at 67, I think, rather than at 70. I think that became a bit of a, a storm in and of itself from memory. Yeah, it, well, it's definitely calculated to sort of ever march away from uh, poor, poor toilers in the fields like myself, um, who will never retire. Uh, it doesn't help that I'm an old dad. I can't afford to retire and all the rest of it. But um, we've got far more immediate issues than retirement PVO. We've seen more protests against the lockdown going on in Melbourne that get ugly and fines get issued. We've still got fights and disagreements about borders and so on. Meanwhile, spring is springing and people are anxious to get out and about. And from what I've seen, uh, particularly around Sydney, there is um, a discarding of a lot of the responsibilities around social distancing, I was staggered uh, at the weekend to see how many people were cramming into restaurants all over the joint. So, and meanwhile, if you mention that anywhere, Victorians get quite rightly um, perturbed. Hmm. Well, that's true. I mean, I guess they, they look at it and say, well, stop, stop your whinging. Look at how tough we've got it. Is that, is that what you mean? Yeah, because I mean, what, what really strikes me is I think people not living in Victoria don't get how it is for Victorians, how long it's been, how long this winter has been, how harsh it's been, how isolating it's been. Um, and some, of course, are letting their frustrations go out into the streets. Others remain very loyal to uh, Daniel Andrews' strict, uh, as Brendan Murphy calls it, aggressive suppression uh, policy. And, uh, you know, they're doing it really, really tough, whereas a lot of the rest of the country, except over those border issues, over funerals and so on, um, you know, people are starting to live a little like That's the impression I get. Yeah, uh, I, and I, think, I, I, think, I, think, about. I, I think you're exactly right. Like, I do think that there's a really... Uh, an, an attitude within the, within the broader community uh, that... That, that is so different out of Victoria at the moment. It's interesting because on, on the project, you know, a lot of the projects producers and, and, um, and the team really at large are, are based in Melbourne. Um, and I used to sort of fly there and back when I do the show down there on, on Friday, certainly. And, and at various points, sometimes on Sundays as well. So now we're doing it all via zoom and, and there's a Sydney crew as well as the Melbourne crew, but most of, most of the team, as I say, are down there. And when you talk to them, and they're the lucky ones, they make the point, because from a work perspective, they get to get out of their homes because they have, you know, that media freedom uh, that, that a lot of employees don't have uh, to be able to travel outside of, you know, curfew hours and all the rest of it uh, if it's work-related. Uh, but even then, they still say you just don't get a sense of it unless you're down there about just how brutal the stage four lockdown is and the length of it uh, and the wearing of face masks, not just in public, but... As, as in in the streets, out out and about, but also in the workplace, uh, unless you're in a sealed off office. Um, so it, it, that has really sort of been something that I've noticed um, conversationally, I suppose, uh, when, when we're talking about it. And as you say, around the rest of the country, there is much more of that attitude of, well, look, you know, we've got this thing licked or largely licked. Uh, and I think that there has been a movement towards 
the Scott Morrison way of thinking about it's time to put the economy first because we've got the health situation under control with the caveat, obviously, of Victoria being the exception that proves that rule. And that's what takes us to some of these border debates, I think, with Queensland and and uh, well, and, and even you know, South Australia and Tasmania as well, by the way. It's just that for some reason, Scott Morrison tends to be much more focused on the Labor premiers than he does on the Liberal. So is this really what Scott Morrison meant when he had that that what I thought was a very stark statement to come from a prime minister at a time of difficulty to say that it's felt at some times as if Australia is breaking apart. Um, oh, I, I, I thought that rhetoric was crazy at the time. And I, and I think he has, he has enabled uh, or facilitated, you know, and he's not Robinson Crusoe on this, the, the, the features that have led to that breaking up of, of Australia that, that we're sort of witnessing elements of, or at least fracturing, let's call it, uh, of Australia, but I think when he when he used that rhetoric, I think he was overstating it. Sean Kelly's got a great piece uh, in the Sydney Morning Herald. I think it's also running in the Age, where he talks about how Morrison may have he doesn't use these words, but essentially jumped the shark a little bit with some of that rhetoric at different points in time. He almost uh, predictively got it right before it was the case. Uh, but I think he's as much part of the problem as he is part of the solution, or indeed identifying the problem. So, what is the problem then? As we sit at the moment, we're seeing, as you say, a um a fracturing of those notions that we're all in it together. There's certainly open warfare now going on aimed at uh, Anastasia Palaszczuk. Uh, we mm. saw uh, Peter Dutton wheeled out to have a crack at her again on Insiders at the weekend. And um, and when it was put to her, why don't you say similar things about Stephen Marshall in South Australia? His response was, well, I'm a Queensland-based MP. Well, no, you're not. You're a federal minister. The minister <laughs> yeah. for, for border security, for home affairs, three votes away from the prime ministership. And yet in this, he's uh, essentially sort of saying, look, it's fine for him to act almost as oh. if he's a kind of a quasi-opposition uh, leader in Queensland. Uh I find the hypocrisy on both sides in, in this debate between Anastasia Palaszczuk and Scott Morrison et al. Uh, ridiculous. I mean, let's start with Anastasia because I'd rather end with uh, the, the, the hit on the, the Prime Minister and, and Peter Dutton for their hypocrisy. I mean, Anastasia Palaszczuk, the abrogation of leadership for her to say this is a decision for the Chief Health Officer, not my decision. That is, quite frankly, garbage. The chief health officer can provide advice and it's advice that you might not want to stray from, frankly, uh, if nothing else, just to cover your own backside from uh, potential difficulties that ensue on the health side if you haven't followed the chief health officer's advice. But the premier makes the damn decisions in conjunction with her cabinet and indeed her government. That is the Westminster system. The chief health officer is a bureaucrat. Now, I'm not diminishing the power of her voice, but the idea that a premier would stand up in parliament, an elected forum, and say, this is not my call, it's the chief health officer's call. That is rubbish. Experts' advice across the spectrum, health advice, public policy advice, economic advice, whatever it might be, human welfare advice, they can pick and choose, they hear it all, and then they make a decision. That's what we elect them, that's what we pay them to do. So I thought that it's was It's also just what leadership hopeless. is. It's what well, exactly. Leadership is. I, I, I just found that. That, that, to me, suggested that Anastasia Palaszczuk would be better off running a corner shop rather than a state, quite frankly. I was just disgusted um, by the abrogating of leadership in that statement. Now, having said I, that... I, 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 no, we'll, get, we'll get on to Morrison in just a second, but let's stay on Anastasia mm. Palaszczuk just for a minute, because fundamentally, when she made that, I was as, as aghast as you were, because the underpinnings for her to be able to make that case is that there is actually no purpose to democracy. Um, yeah, we can have te technocrats can run on every damn thing. And 
you know, what she's really saying is that elected leaders are just window dressing. They're the little geraniums in the flower box. Uh, there's, you know, they all nod in the wind and they all look very nice, but in fact, they don't do a damn thing. And I, I, I thought, well, at that point, it's just one of those yet another head shake moments uh, of this year. Maybe she misspoke, oh. but she said it more than once. So presumably she's, you know, but anyway, you, you, I think we're in furious agreement on that. So let's yeah, move on to Scott Morrison. Well, and, the, and it's important to move on to Scott Morrison because it's really interesting. Like when you see people's reactions, there's a lot of partisanship here with people that will either defend the Labor Premier or attack uh, attack her. And it's it's based not on the issues, but it's based on their sort of political worldview. And I know that's not the case for you, and it's certainly not the case for me either. Uh, so you know, moving on to Scott Morrison, I, I think that these are two peas in a pod when it comes to their failures here, but perhaps on slightly different grounds. Um, but, you know, Scott Morrison, he goes after Anastasia Palaszczuk um, on, you know, what, what are ridiculous abrogations of leadership and, and, and an inability to think outside the square, I would argue, on the issue itself. But equally, there's been so much inconsistency from Scott Morrison and indeed from Peter Dutton. I mean, firstly, he goes after her. He does not go after the Liberal premiers in Tasmania and South Australia, where we have had analogous examples time and time again. Why isn't he tearing um, Premier Marshall from South Australia limb from limb the same way he's trying to do it to Anastasia Palaszczuk? There's only one answer to that. She's a Labor Premier. Marshall is a Liberal Premier. And, and within that ambit, she's got an election coming up that the LNP think they're a crack at winning in Queensland. And the state Liberals in South Australia actually have an election further down the track that they're at risk of losing. So it accentuates the partisanship of Scott Morrison. And then you can say the same thing about what's going on in Tasmania. Uh, equally, there's hypocrisy on the way that they are treating people wanting to leave the country uh, on compassionate grounds to go overseas to be able to visit loved ones and relatives who might be dying uh, or facing serious illness. You're not even allowed as an Australian citizen under Peter Dutton and Scott Morrison to leave the damn country without an exemption. And hundreds of people are not getting that exemption for the exact same reason that they're saying, those Liberals at the federal level, that exemption should be given at the state level to get into Queensland. Uh, now, why not? You know, people should be allowed to travel abroad as long as they're aware of the risks and the dangers, equally with the risks and dangers around the time frame of returning and how long that might take with the limited quarantining that's available on return that you pay for yourself. So they are complete hypocrites, right? And, and Peter Dutton in his interview on Sunday with David Spears, he tries to say, oh, well, you know, it's different. You can't, you're comparing apples and oranges between uh, federal, uh, sorry, between international movements and state-by-state -state movements. Well, I mean, to some extent they are apples and oranges, but not on this particular issue. This, this highlights the hypocrisy in the most obvious of ways. So it's just, oh God, they're all as bad as each other. And, and more so the, uh, the exemption that seemed to be no difficulty for Tony Abbott to go to the UK. Well, that's exactly right. Or, or the millionaire who picked up his yacht uh, in Greece, I think it was, uh, to be able to sail it back. I mean, you know, or the exemption that Border Force in conjunction with the Queensland government gave to Tom Hanks to be able to fly into Queensland to do his, uh, to do his movie production work. They, they are actually both signing off on something there that highlights both of their hypocrisy when it comes to the claims of the need to be compassion for people to move either within borders in Australia or internationally. I mean, it, it, it honestly, is these guys. 
It is bizarre, isn't it? Because this is between them. Scott Morrison, of course, was the guy who policed the stop the boats thing when they came in in 2013. That was his job before it was Dutton's. And then but between the two of them, they're totally identified with uh, border security at a national level. So uh, blocking people from crossing borders has been their absolute stock and trade. There's a little boat um, famously on Scott Morrison's desk that he stopped the boats. So border, you know, border management over any hint of compassion is what these guys have worn as a badge of honor for years and years. And most Australians, by and large, it seems from elections, have saluted them for doing it. But it does seem rich to now say, oh, but <laughs> compassion, compassion, you must open the borders. Compassion, where's your compassion? It does seem a little bit rich. There is an entire podcast in him having a little mocked up asylum seeker boat with a reading across it, I stopped these. I mean, in, fa- in fact, frankly, not only is that an entire podcast, I reckon that's a therapy session right there. That is just unbelievable to me that he's actually got that city on his desk. I mean, I, 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 no words for that. We move on from but, that. My, but, mind, you, mind you, it was his political achievement. Scott Morrison, as they came into office, and I remember uh, Scott Morrison before they won in 2013, uh, having a conversation with him, and I'm not giving away any private things. You said this publicly. I say, do you really want to take over this job? Where you're going to essentially um, uh, really cruel uh, the lives of people who uh, mm. overwhelmingly are found to be refugees? It's a heartless thing. And he said he had no problem with it. He thought it was important uh, uh, for. for yeah, but, yeah, but Hugh, you, I know you. I'm sure you agree with me on this. I, I, I'm not of the same mind on on that issue, but I, I can respect his position on it, just like I can John Howard's before them. Good luck to them. We can agree to disagree. But a plaque on your desk with a picture of an asylum boat, like an actual toy asylum boat in you know, stainless steel or whatever it is, with the words, I stop these. I mean, that, that, that's, that's just pathetic, isn't it? I mean, I, I can't even fathom. I don't even want to use examples of something equally as untoward that I could imagine figures throughout history that have achieved outcomes could do as an equivalent. It's, it's ridiculous. And he was given it. He didn't get it made up himself, but he was given it. If I was given that, it would end up in a really dark drawer somewhere if it wasn't on the rubbish tip. You know, he's got it on his desk. Someone, yeah, but has, I, I actually thought, Hugh, someone has actually thought, whether it's him or one of his advisors, that it's a good look to have that sitting on his prime ministerial desk. I mean, are you kidding me? Well, I guess, I guess what happens is that people who come into his office, uh, most of them coming in, he maybe puts them in the bottom drawer for some visitors he gets into the prime ministerial office. But um, for most of the base, that is actually part of what got him elected as the prime minister. Um, it, is that it proved that he had the uh, cojones, if you like, to, um, to do the difficult and I'm By the way, policy work. I know we're going to take a break in a moment, Hugh, but just on that very quickly... Uh, I think it was when he was shadow immigration before he actually did officially stop the boats, as his plaque reminds him on a daily basis. Uh, I think that was when he raised all sorts of concerns about the state paying for some asylum seekers on Christmas Island to go to a funeral on the mainland for a, a relative that they were going through the grieving process. Why don't we just let people pause as they hear the advert in the middle of this podcast and consider that for a moment. The Prime Minister you know, who's got a tear being shed 
uh, about Queensland. I'm sure there's no politics in this. There's no hypocrisy. He's outraged. I was too. We just ranted about it a moment ago, Hugh. But he's very upset because, you know, this lady uh, really needed to be able to get there for a grieving child of a, a father who'd passed away. This is the same bloke that actually made a political point out of the outrageous cost of letting asylum seekers on Christmas Island do the same to get to a funeral on the mainland. I think it was back in 2012. No hypocrisy there. Think about that while you listen to whatever the advert is. And yeah, we'll be back in a moment. This week on 10 Speaks, Osher Ginsberg and Alicia Aitken-Radburn take you through all the Bachelor action in the Cocktails and Roses podcast. And Sandra Sully's guest on Short Back this week is Marina Go. I'm so curious about the path you've chosen and the way you charted your course. You're a journo, once a journo, arguably always a journo, but you move seemingly effortlessly into the boardroom space and you've done it with aplomb. Find these and all our 10 Speaks podcasts on your favourite podcast app. Welcome back. I'm sure you've been thinking deeply um, and properly about uh, hypocrisy and, uh, and, and whether you can go to funerals and the history. And one thing about politicians, if they stick around long enough, they'll wind up contradicting every position um, that they've ever mm. held. That's uh, part of what makes the game ripe for cynics. Um, however, there are things which uh, defy cynicism. We're expecting jobs numbers on Thursday. Uh, we don't know what they are. We know they're not going to be pretty to look at. What are your expectations? Well, I assume they're going to be continuing to creep towards double digits, aren't they? Uh, they're in the high sevens, I think, on the last one. Uh, you know, whether they punch into the eights, I'm not sure. I, I know that the Treasury predictions are that it would hit 10% uh, and possibly keep going north, and, and the stage four lockdown in Victoria is only going to contribute to that. But all of these numbers continue to be masked, don't they? Because we have the ongoing reality of JobKeeper. Uh, notwithstanding changes to the amount that's been put in the mix as well as eligibility criteria around it, until JobKeeper is removed, whenever that might actually be, as opposed to where it's currently legislated to be, until that happens, we won't really know the true state of unemployment in this country. And I'm only talking even there about the true state of the headline figure, much less all the underemployment uh, and so forth that sits underneath that. So that's a, a massive caveat on any of these numbers. We know that we've now ticked over a million unemployed, but it could, it's going to be a lot worse than that when that time comes. Sure, because just to be clear so everyone understands it, if you're on JobKeeper, even if you are not doing a thing and haven't done a thing, haven't got any work from your employer uh, for weeks or months, you still mm. don't count as unemployed. No, exactly. And, and you know, by definition, a lot of the job, I mean, forget for a moment the, the, the hit on the economy and the recession and what that will naturally do to jobs numbers anyway. We also know that job, what JobKeeper's done is not only keep people in employment where they might not, as you say, Hugh, even be doing any work at the moment, they're just simply taking the JobKeeper payments. Those businesses, some of them are in hibernation and, and they might be fortunate enough to come out the other side and, and be able to keep people on in employment. But a lot of them we know are already uh, defunct businesses uh, that, that would have long ago closed down had it not been for some of these support networks that sit there. So they're, they're not even in hibernation. They're, they're, they're essentially the equivalent of an extinct volcano. Um, but, you know, these subsidies are continuing to, to, to burn through. 
and we'll see what the real effect is at the other side. It ain't going to be pretty, that's for damn sure. Yeah, so under normal circumstances, of course, we'd be an outrage that you'd have zombie companies wandering around the place that are effectively dead, as you say, extinct volcanoes, but still <clears> drawing or acting as a conduit to taxpayer funds, to essentially zombie workers uh, who don't have any work to do and don't have, you know, nowhere, you know, that, that won't change. Um, and that's where our outrage would be. However, the times are such that we, you know, the arguments are there to say, well, it's, it's as well that it is like that. Um, it can't last forever, plainly. Uh, and, and there has to be a reckoning at some stage, even, <clears throat> if, even if the vaccines come in. And I notice that the, uh, the trials are back on again with the AstraZeneca one. They had that pause because of the illness that turned up in one of the people in, in part of the, uh, mm. uh, the sample group. But they're back now continuing on with that. But even if it comes in on that original timetable of January, February next year, um, there is a huge shaking out still to come uh, across business in Australia and across the world, but in Australia in the months ahead, surely. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, and that's before we even get to some of the other flow and effects in the economy. And at the moment, you know, you've still got these moratoriums on rent. Um, and that's particularly relevant in the way that they're constructed for commercial properties, which feeds into uh, the crisis around jobs, because that's another way that if you like, zombie businesses are still being subsidized to some extent, because you can sort of sit there. For example, if you're a retailer of some description, you can sit there and be not paying rent and not paying your staff uh, and potentially even being a little bit open to be able to do a little bit of business. Um, but if you don't have a wages bill and if you don't have uh, an occupancy bill uh, in terms of rent, then your overheads are gone by and large. Uh, and you can still sort of eke by in a way that all collapses once the moratorium on rent and JobKeeper payments get withdrawn. And, and, and that's just one example of a plethora of such examples that exist right across the economy. And tourism, of course, is another big one where we're going to see the, the true impact of that. And, and that's why some of the discussion, it's already shifted to this, but it'll probably shift more and more to it as we get towards the end of this year. And then we get into the early part of next year, uh, there will be some sectors that continue to be subsidized. I would predict well into next year. You know, what, what the PM and the Treasurer are trying to do, and whether they get it right or not, we probably want hindsight before we start to make assessments on it. What they're trying to do, and, and the budget will give us some shaping on this, they're, they're trying to do what is not supposed to be done, which is government picking winners, uh, if you like, uh, and, and trying to decide which are the sectors that need to continue to be supported, which are the ones where we need to withdraw it, because it can act as a work disincentive. Now, I don't want to talk about that in an ideological way, because I think that that's where it can become a sort of an IPA style argument, which I don't like. But I do think at certain margins in the system, uh, that the, the original $1,500 JobKeeper payment can become a disincentive for some workers to look for other work if it continues into perpetuity. And that's why the government's reducing it, I think, to 1200 and then 1000 uh, in, in a step-based process, as well as the eligibility around it. So all of these adjustments it's, it's, it's fascinating to watch because generally there are adjustments where they're being done by a party that is not supposed to like too much government intervention, at least in theory, and is supposed to ascribe to the view uh, that, that government picking winners is not a good way to go. Yet here we are uh, with the Liberal Party in government doing exactly that. I get the feeling myself that uh, I reckon it's the end of, in the first three months of next year, let's say there's good news going with the... Uh, with the vaccine, 
the government is going to be keen, it's going to be necessary for the government to start to wind, wind back off, uh, you know, all these payments. And that's the point at which the zombies start to, you know, come up out of their, come up out of their graves and get pop shotted off. So, you know, in a sense, I think that there will be an enormous churn of businesses, collapse of businesses, even as we start to get optimistic, a little bit more optimistic about being able to get through the pandemic if the vaccine is there. I just mm. kind of have a feeling that, that uh, towards the end of next, of the coming summer, is where we're really going to see companies put up the hand and say, well, we're done here. Um, others will rise and, and part of that sort of, you know, inevitable constant churn of, of business, uh, you know, rising and falling, people trying things on, people perhaps reinvesting in ideas, seeing opportunities, that will happen. But I just kind of feel it's going to be pretty ugly uh, over, over the next six months as they start to pull that off. It's my, oh, yeah. My fearless and unskilled. And, and then the, I get the other thing is, is that, um, you know, we're seeing, for example, in New South Wales, new figures coming out about the fact that there's these huge um, shortfalls in uh, a state budget because public transport uh, patronage is down so far. There's hundreds of millions of dollars not coming in. Uh, they still have to put on the services. They still have to show willing, you know, but there's no, there's no ticket money coming in or vastly reduced ticket money. Uh, you get mm. the GST reductions going through to the states because there's less activity and yep. because Victoria has had almost like a total shutdown of activity then there's not much GST being gathered there which would go back out to the states so essentially every state is going to feel uh, directly the the cost to their own bottom line of uh, a loss of GST through what's what's going on in Victoria so everywhere you look there is a um, at state or federal level there's that sense of of where's Where's the money, you know? Mm. Um, and I'm seeing also that this financial review had a story about uh, a, a steep and continuing decline in Chinese investment, uh, direct investment in Australia, uh, peaked in 2016 and, and has really dropped off a cliff there as well. There may be all kinds of factors involved in that. But again, we've had it so good. And, um, and now we're going to have to find new ways to you know, to, to, to claw our way up, to find out who we are. Could you be any more depressing? I know. Look, look, the thing about it is, the thing about it is... I, I agree, by the way, but oh my God, like you, when you put it all together in one, you know, f f from, from starting in reverse from what you just laid out, you know, the, the snapshot of the problems coming from abroad, you haven't even brought Donald Trump into the mix with what happens there, but, you know, China and and domestically and, and, and all of the elements to it, you realize that this is, and I, I know a lot of people have said this, this is the end of the beginning, not the beginning of the end when it comes to the coronavirus crisis, you know, because that brings in both the health and the economic impact of it. You know, this is potentially like the beginnings of the great depression. Now it may not be as bad as that in, in many respects, but just, you know, even if there's remote analogous comparisons there, the Great Depression started with the crash and then the, 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 the awful period that followed. But to think about how much worse the poverty got, how much worse the economic impact got, and then how much worse the international environment got, it was all the precursors to World War II. Now, I'm not saying that's what as an equivalent is going to happen today, but I tell you what, the tumult of abroad 
coupled with the economic impact domestically, uh, it is a diabolical time and it is scary as hell, you know, and I know you'd be look, the look, same. I, 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 I agree. People, younger people in particular, oh my God. I agree. And then, and then the other element, there are always elements that I'm not so pessimistic. I'm not by nature pessimistic, but the, uh, the other element, which wasn't a factor back in the 1930s is the sense that the, the whole globe itself is under an enormous amount of pressure. Uh, you know, the fires we've seen in California, record temperatures being seen in the United States, permafrost melting across, you know, the vast reaches of, um, of, of the Arctic areas from Siberia through Alaska, northern Canada, and so on. All of that releasing methane, all of that being a feedback loop that's, um, that's warming us faster and faster. None of these things uh, are inconsequential. They're enormously consequential. We still don't have the um, rhetorical grasp to deal with all of these things. The scientific grasp is pretty much uh, all there. The, the, up, the upside to it is, uh, and this is what, what I would look to, it, you know, it certainly is not the total answer, is that I, I believe that in times of trouble, complacency burns off. And hopefully uh, we can focus and find from ourselves, we've got great intellectual capacities within Australia, great, um, you know, a diverse and outwardly looking a, a population, one hopes um, that there are, there are ways in which uh, we, we, can, we can learn how to play in this new and difficult world and be quite effective in it. And we dodged the worst of it in many ways. So I'm not pessimistic overall, but I, I definitely think we're in for some of the most uh, challenging times since. Yeah. Uh, and and part of that, Hugh, I think, like you don't have to be a pessimist to be concerned for, if you like, a well, question marks around people's resilience in coping with what's ahead, partly because of what we've all become used to over the last X number of decades of, of uninhibited economic growth. You know, uh, it's, you know, th there are no generations left uh, that experienced uh, the Great Depression, not, not as adults. So, uh, you know, that, that of itself is a concerning thing. Uh, if, if what we're facing, and I know we're almost out of time, but if what we're facing is, you know, that much worse than the recession of the early 90s or the recession of the early 80s or the recession of the early 70s, if, if it is that much worse than each of those uh, and we have fewer people that have lived through it as well as a great bulk of people that have never lived through any version of a recession, then we're not really aware of what we're in for yet, you know, and, and that, that is of itself a, its own risk uh, in the broader risk that the coronavirus crisis is creating. We need to find our best over the times ahead. I think PVO, uh, good to talk to you for episode 70 and uh, we'll talk again soon. See you, mate. been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.